0: Thank you for joining us today. I wanna welcome everyone to the November installment of the STS 2021 webinar series. This webinar series runs every month and features presentations and panel discussions on a variety of topics relevant and important to cardiothoracic surgeons. The topic for this month is tricuspid valve valve disease treatment, surgical or transcatheter, Please note, this webinar is being recorded and will be available tomorrow morning on the STS website, STS YouTube channel, and as part of the STS Hot Topics podcast. At this time, I am pleased to welcome our moderators for this session, Dr. Gaurav Alawadi, Dr. Yoshi Kaneko, and Dr. James Gami. Moderators, welcome. I will now turn it over to you.
1: Great, thank you. Uh, My name's Gaurav Alawadi, I want to thank everybody uh, for joining uh, late on this Thursday night. Uh, We do have what I believe is going to be a really exciting discussion. As you all know, uh, tricuspid valve disease is really a hot topic, and we're going to focus on two specific areas, uh, both with uh, the recent clinical trial data on how to handle the tricuspid valve during mitral valve surgery, uh, data that just was released uh, this past weekend, as well as the whole landscape of transcatheter devices and where they might fit in uh, in our treatment of patients with advanced tricuspid valve disease. So uh, I'd like to introduce my uh, co-moderators, Jim Gammy, who's at uh, Johns Hopkins um, Hospital and University. Uh, He will talk about, of course, uh, data that I just mentioned that's uh, really late-breaking, and Yoshi Koneko from the Brigham and Women's Hospital. I'll also uh, go ahead and introduce the rest of the uh, panelists uh, Leora Yarborough from the University of Virginia, um, Molly Surlip, who is a uh, really um, uh, leader in uh, interventional cardiology and, and interventional tricuspid valve disease, and uh, Becky Hahn. I believe most of the surgeons out there know uh, Becky Hahn at Columbia University, who's really a world class echocardiographer and has taught us a lot about um, how to image this uh, challenging valve. So without further ado, uh, we're going to go ahead and start. Um, with the first case, and I believe Dr. Yarbo is going to start uh, on a surgical case.
2: Thanks, everybody. Um, It's a pleasure to be here. I was asked to present a case uh, that came up recently, actually, uh, somebody with mitral uh, degenerative mitral disease and had a concomitant uh, tricuspid issue. And so um, just to present the case here, this is that of a 70-year-old male, a history of hypertension, moderate to severe pulmonary disease, liver disease and severe pulmonary hypertension, who presented with severe mitral regurgitation and P2 prolapse. Uh, He also had mild tricuspid regurgitation and annulus about 3.9 centimeters. And here you can see his disease uh, in the mitral position. And again, not too much TR, but a mildly dilated annulus there. And there's his mitral disease. And so I just have a little, a few slides just to present the case. And I might just pause here for a second just to ask the panel, is there anything in particular that stands out in this case from a tricuspid standpoint where you would initially jump on?
1: It's a good question. I don't know, Jim. You want to take a first stab at it?
3: Uh, no, the the, the uh, tr you said was was mild, um, and um, the um, RV function was was normal. And, and and what was the what were the PA pressures?
2: So the PA pressure is about two thirds systemic there um, with severe okay. in the setting of severe mitral regurgitation. I can show it to you. Then. And then
4: when you, when you say liver disease, um, is it liver disease? by so, so changing
2: uh, so some cirrhotic changes on CT scan, but not uh, any functional disorder.
1: Yeah, and I, I mean, when we think about the tricuspid valve, even this uh, description that you're uh, presenting here, mild tricuspid disease with a, an annulus of three point nine. Um, typically, I mean, that wouldn't necessarily meet even the, the guidelines for necessarily intervening on the tricuspid valve unless the patient's BSA is, is quite small and their indexed uh, annular dimensions are large. So, you know, I, I think there's this, this patient, you know, if we, when we move into uh, Dr. Gammy's discussion, would not necessarily even qualify for that, uh, the, the uh, CTSN trial. Um, however, yeah. if, they're, if they're a small uh, patient, then, then they might.
2: And I, and I agree. And so um, I'll move on with the case here. Uh, this patient was ultimately uh, treated with a mitriclip, uh, as it turns out, I think due to the comorbidities there and then later presented um, afterwards. Uh, unfortunately, there was three clips placed and can, had now still severe uh, MR as well as the degree of MS. And, and now this is the presentation here that you can probably see of the tricuspid valve where truly uh, moderate uh, MR. And so this is the patient that actually arrived to surgery. Um, and the, the view I showed you before was, was prior to the mitral intervention. And so uh, pausing now here.
1: Can you, can you maybe uh, clarify for the surgical audience um, the decision that the patient should get a mitral clip? So, so, I was
2: not part of that decision uh, making, uh, presumably due to the pulmonary uh, disease. It was a higher risk patient, um, history of recent COVID, etc.
5: So, yeah. All right. What was the um the RV function and pulmonary hypertension at this time? I can't see it being being better. Yeah.
2: Sorry, this doesn't play in a loop, but the RV function is preserved. Sorry, and then um, uh, and pulmonary hypertension persists. So still, uh, but where it was before, two thirds systemic. But, uh, but a little bit more uh, symptomatic, certainly from a shortness of breath standpoint is why the patient came to us and, um, and that keeps going back there, but. Um,
5: I'm then annular, um, and then the annular dimensions?
2: So the annular dimensions are similar here. There's still about 3.9, uh, maybe a little bit more, um, a little bit more evidence of, of RA um, overload. And then of course uh, there is an ASD present from the,
1: the MitraClip procedure. And, and can you show us a little more about the what happened in the mitral valve? Because it now looks like a much more yeah. complex jet.
2: Absolutely. Um, it is. There's there's multiple jets uh, across uh, in the greatest stenosis. I believe the gradient across that was about six.
3: What was the interval between the mitral clip and representation? presentation It was about three weeks. Okay.
5: All right, Laura, do you have any more slides after this? Or is this where we decide? This
3: is where we
2: discuss, yeah. 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 So MR in the setting of an acute decompensated uh, patient with mitral clips on the mitral valve there. So, yeah. so
1: yeah, tell us about the presentation you said decompensated, I presume they're- uh, so more short of breath, sure.
2: not- so Felt actually initially okay after the, the mitral clip procedure, it sounded like. And, and by all accounts, uh, the procedure itself was okay, although not perfect, um, but then had uh, just sort of an abrupt uh, shortness of breath and, and a different echo finding. Um, which was more significant uh, regurgitation
1: on the mitral side than before. So Molly, I'm going to put you on the spot. How would you handle this? Wait, yeah,
4: well, I'm still trying to figure out a little bit. I mean, if this person had severe pulmonary hypertension and only mild TR at the time, I mean, I'm still trying to figure out what this underlying disease, like what caused that, I mean, does this person have primary pulmonary hypertension? I mean,
2: yeah, I believe so COPD uh, as primary and then a recent history of COVID and also asbestosis. So, so three different etiologies of pulmonary disease. Um, it was restrictive on PFTs um, was the finding, but.
4: Yeah. yeah, I mean, so initially I would have probably done the same thing. We would have tried with mitroclip because it seems like a pr- pretty high risk for surgery, both liver and um, pulmonary hypertension. That's not caused val- because of the valve. It wasn't valvular pulmonary hypertension. And, um, you know, I probably would have done the same thing now that he still has severe, uh, you well, know.
2: I what would... was
1: the immediate result of, from uh, the procedure? I mean, this... so,
2: so the report um, from the procedure there was, uh, it was mild to moderate MR uh, and no significant TR or anything else. Well, yeah. Was
1: this originally
5: done elsewhere or Is was it? All right. well, Gora, for the sake of time, let's see. Um, you know, why don't why don't you see if uh, you're gonna do the tricuspid repair? Yeah, maybe we take a vote. Yeah.
1: So I think clearly, you're gonna do something to the mitral valve. Maybe you're gonna try to take the clips off since it's only three weeks and try to repair it, depending on the etiology. I don't know if, if we can tell enough, or if Becky has any thoughts. I know it's just a single picture. It looks like there are multiple jets. I don't know if there's a perforation as well. Yeah,
4: that's what I'm wondering. Was there like a I don't know? Did they rupture a cord? Was there something else? Because that just uh, you know, it's kind of strange. I'm sure Lara yeah. would be able I to. I
2: did the full right. echo for you, Becky. You know, it would have been more interesting for you. But there were there were multiple jets across, and it did look like there was perforation as well. Okay. So yeah.
1: you may, may not may not be able to repair it. You may may or may not.
0: Yeah. So Denied. Snap.
1: It's like. And and then the question then becomes you know in, in the at least of the panelists who would think that they, that we should uh, put an put a ring on the, the tricuspid valve which now has moderate TR in the setting I guess with some liver disease and, and certainly pulmonary hypertension Jim what do you
3: think I, I would my practice would be to uh, repair the tricuspid mm-hmm.
1: yeah.
5: Yep Yoshi. I would. I'll I be concerned with yeah, the pulmonary hypertension, and um, you know, with the exacerbation, I think the RV is going to tire out if you don't repair that valve.
1: Molly, sounds like you're. Yeah,
4: I I think that I would ask you guys to now repair the tricuspid. But in the original presentation um, with mild tricuspid, I'm I'm not sure I would ask you to. And I think that's what the data, the, the new data that came out, just. Well re- so-
5: Yeah, don't leak the secret yet. I think we're gonna move on to Jim's presentation now. Um, I think a lot of people were anticipating this. So, you know, Jim, do you think you can share your um, slides that was just presented at the AJ?
3: I'd be delighted to, but if I may ask the group a question uh, originally with the initial presentation, who would have operated on that patient and who would have sent him to MitraClip and who might've enrolled them in a prospective randomized trial to try and answer that question? Yeah. It seemed
1: like a perfect patient for, you know, an intermediate risk type study, yeah. <laughs> if you will. And, and I, we know that there, there are some going on right now to compare CLIP to, to surgery.
4: And again, some, so, of,
5: some of the liver disease and the lung disease is yeah. you know, very, very difficult to assess at that time. But um, yeah, I, I think I would try to randomize. I think that's where the equipoise is.
4: Well, if mm-hmm. the pulmonary hypertension was greater than 70, you wouldn't get it in any trial.
5: You're you're
3: right.
2: Unfortunately, I don't have any of the
4: specific data on on the initial
2: presentation of that
3: one. I I think that patient would be pretty low risk for uh, conventional surgery. Um, I I don't. So um, I'm going to I'll just jump in. Thanks for your input on that. Um, This is I I recently presented this at the American Heart. Uh, This is a trial that's been in the the works for a long time. And um, it was really a privilege to present on behalf of the ctsn uh, investigators who did terrific work here Um, and this trial was really um, uh, was started around the question of what to do with a patient like this with moderate tr and we looked at this when we started the trial in the sts database and across the country a patient like this with moderate tr would have their tricuspid valve fixed 40% 40% of the time. So there clearly was equipoise about um, what to do. And I think you all know that it's a really controversial issue and the rate of concomitant tricuspid valve repair can range from anywhere from 5% to 70%, depending on uh, what institution you're at. So that was the background uh, that we did the trial on. And as uh, Gaurav alluded to, the current guidelines are sort of a 2 A recommendation, both uh, European and American, to uh, fix the tricuspid valve, particularly in the presence of annular dilation defined as a, uh, a diameter above four centimeters. And that's during diastole from an apical four chamber uh, or a index to body surface area above 21. So, so the trial was um, uh, focused on uh, DMR patients. This was just a brief reminder of what the trial uh, looked like. It happened in the US, Canada, and Germany. And uh, if you had degenerative MR and you had either moderate TR or less than moderate TR with tricuspid annular dilation, you were allowed to be in the trial. And, uh, you know, one thing that we were able to control for, by and large, was the surgical approach. And we used undersized, defined as 26 to 30, rigid non-planar annuloplasty rings for, for all patients. And so we randomized 401 patients, one to one allocation to either undergo isolated mitral surgery or concomitant tricuspid valve repair. And the main uh, endpoint was a composite of death, reoperation for TR, or progression of TR, which was defined by severe TR or increased by two grades. Um, and that was a two year um, endpoint. And we had uh, Judy Hung and her group at Mass General did the core lab. Uh, adjudication. And there were uh, a number of uh, uh, clinical and echo quality of life secondary endpoints that you can see here. So this is what the trial looked like. Um, a typical population of patients with degenerative MR, they were in their late uh, 60s, approximately 44% of them had atrial fibrillation. They had preserved ventricular function. Um, The moderate TR group made up a little bit over one third of the patients, with the remainder of them having less than moderate TR and annular dilation. Most of them had good RV function. Um, The uh, operative approach was sternotomy in half the patients. Um, Interestingly, and uh, worth diving into, is uh, the fact that about 90% of patients were repaired, 10% were replaced, about half had concomitant procedures we found the bypass time was 34 minutes longer in the group that had concomitant tricuspid valve repair. So this is the um, the key primary endpoint. And you can see that at two years, uh, the endpoint was uh, substantially, significantly more common in the isolated mitral surgery group as compared to the concomitant group. And in fact, um, no patient in either group needed a reoperation for TR. Death was Pretty uncommon and similar in the two group. And the primary endpoint was driven by TR progression. And I'll have a little bit more information on that um, coming up. We did a post hoc analysis uh, that was not pre-specified, but it was to sort of inform our results. And we divided the groups into those with the moderate TR at baseline on the right and less than moderate on the left. And did not see a difference in the primary endpoint in the less than moderate TR group. And in fact, in both of those groups, less than 1% of patients had progressive or severe TR. Whereas in the moderate TR group, 14 and a half percent of patients uh, in uh, the isolated mitral valve surgery group had progression. Zero patients that were treated with an annuloplasty ring had progression. Um, This slide demonstrates the progression of TR over time. Uh, You can see that there was an immediate uh, difference on the predismissal echocardiogram. If I can draw your attention to the right at 24 months, the uh, patients with severe TR, which were light red there in the the bar uh, graph, 5.6% in the mitral valve surgery alone group and only 0.6% in the combined group. And if you look at moderate or severe, so the yellow or the light red, a quarter of isolated patients had either moderate or severe TR at two years, only 3.4% in the combined uh, group. The uh, cost of this was an increased pacemaker rate, 14.1% in the tricuspid group and only 2.5% in the isolated mitral valve surgery group. We saw no difference in clinical endpoints of mortality, uh, adverse events, readmissions, quality of life, functional uh, status, and patients seem to stay in the hospital a few days longer in the U.S. and Canada. So our conclusion was that tricuspid plasty in patients with moderate or less TR decreased treatment failure. This was driven by progression of TR in the moderate TR group, came at the cost of an increased risk of pacemaker implantation, had no impact on adverse events, survival or quality of life. These patients were relatively young and have a long life expectancy and the plan is to continue to follow them. And uh, I think it will be very interesting to see what the five-year data show. And these were the sites and a big shout out to the Data Coordinating Center, the patients and the, uh, the team that uh, took care of them. So I'm gonna stop there and uh, thank you for uh, allowing me to share that data on behalf of our of our team. Jim, that was, that was great. Um, I want to hear
5: what the cardiologist reactions are to this first. So Molly and Becky, uh, maybe start with Molly. What's your reaction when you heard this?
4: Well, so I kind of had the feeling to be perfectly honest, that mild TR, um, was probably okay to leave and that moderate and severe needed to be fixed. And it's kind of what I think our practice has been at our hospital. So it was nice to know that that was, um, you know, that uh, was borne out. But what was surprising was the, or maybe not surprising, but concerning, I should say, is the pacemaker rate. And um, because we all know that pacemakers are not um, benign. And so, uh, you, you know, I'm not sure what to make of that. So you're trading off an increase in TR for an increase in pacemaker rate which is also associated with mortality.
5: Right. Jim, what do you think about that pacemaker rate of 14%? Do you think that was a little higher than, uh, than our standard practice?
3: You know, it's interesting. In a, um, a national group from um, El Cooley at Mayo, the pacemaker rate was about 11%. There are some single centers uh, that report much lower pacemaker rate. For example, um, Joe Chikwe presented a few years ago around uh, 2 or 3%. So it's interesting. And the network is planning on doing a deep dive uh, and uh, uh, Gaurav uh, and others will be involved in that analysis. And we look forward to perhaps identifying some of the risk factors. I I will share with you that a lot of those pacemakers were put in in the first day or two after uh, surgery. And so there may be, um, I think that uh, what A couple of things stand out for me in this trial. Number one, I'll I'll point out that, you know, the mortality rate for surgery in these patients was less than 1%, uh, the perioperative mortality rate. So it was outstanding. And even at two years was uh, 4%, so 96% survival at two years this is the gold standard surgery. Um, And uh, I think that uh, the uh, undersized rigid annuoplasty ring was remarkably effective at preventing recurrent TR, if you look at it, much better than an undersized ring in the mitral position for someone with functional MR. Uh, And I guess I would say that it behooves us to look at the management of these patients and maybe some of our technical aspects of what we're doing. So hopefully we could get the benefit of fixing that tricuspid annulus and preventing progressive TR without the cost of that of that pacemaker. So it remains to be seen and it's a very interesting uh, question. Jim, there was a
1: question, just you mentioned the, the ring, uh, if you can confirm that it, uh, they're asking if it was a solid or a flexible ring. And in the it, trial would, it was-
3: Right. Rid, rigid rigid rings I think there were yeah. three or four commercially available rings that were allowed yeah. uh, in the trial
1: and in terms of undersizing, there was not a standardized method to undersize it was up to the surgeon's discretion, but only uh, three sizes were allowed 26, 28 and 20 uh, and 30 uh, and no larger ring was allowed essentially
3: That's right and I believe it was uh, the average ring size was 28 in men and 27 in women. Or twenty nine and twenty eight, something like that. But so the protocol was by and large followed, All right? And if there's some questions
1: in the chat. I think that we'll need to do a deeper dive about the timing of the the pacemaker, and, and you've already alluded to um, that that might have influenced maybe the, a higher pacemaker rate than what one would expect. I guess I would only, I would add. You know, the CTSN in the past has done a trial in AFib ablation, and when you do a biatrial maze in the setting of mitral valve surgery for patients with uh, persistent AFib, the pacemaker rate is actually higher than this. It's, it's 20 if you're doing a biatrial maze. So, you know, the one thing that we'll need to look at is when, we're, when we add a tricuspid, did surgeons end up doing a biatrial maze and could that have influenced uh, some of the pacemaker rates? Molly, any other thoughts on your end? Becky, on your end? Yeah, yeah. I mean, maybe, yeah Becky, can I
5: ask specifically about the uh, the dimensions? You know, I think I think that was the subgroup analysis that really had an impact from this study of measurement of forty. I think there was another question about the question of index and how accurately can you measure this annulus of forty? Yeah, meters that, with that, That's
6: a, that's a really good question because, in all honesty, we've learned a lot from three dimensional studies that show um, that obviously it's three dimensional structure, and so. When you're trying to measure something from an an apical four-chamber view, if you just tilt a little and do a focused view or, you know, we have three different RV views now, you're going to get completely different numbers. In addition, we know that um, functional ventricular functional disease is going to dilate differently than atrial functional disease. And so, um, you know, you get one that dilates more out the anterior lateral, the other posterior lateral. And so, you know, it's a three-dimensional structure. And to think that a four-centimeter annular uh, size um, whether or not it was indexed uh, to, uh, to body size is, is going to represent the entire annulus. It's just, it's just, you know, folly. And so at some point, I think we will be uh, uh, hopefully changing to more three-dimensional analysis of annular dimensions because multiple studies have shown that annular size actually determines uh, tricuspid regurgitation severity. And that's just been shown recently with three-dimensional studies. So it's really right atrial size and annular uh, area uh, that end up uh, determining TR severity. And that makes sense, right? Because the bigger the area, unless you, you know, have enough leaflet growth, you're not gonna cover the area. So um, I think it's just that a linear dimension is, is, is just um, you know, not, not, not gonna be accurate enough. Uh, the only other thing to ask Jim is that, um, you know, I think we need to take the results um, with a little bit of equipoise because this was a degenerative mitral regurgitation that you were repairing. And um, and so consequently, the, the, the etiology of the tricuspid regurge might indeed have been primary uh, or more often primary than secondary um, to any kind of um, uh, post-capillary pulmonary hypertension. And in that setting, we already know from outcome studies that the outcomes mortality, as well as heart failure hospitalizations is less in patients with organic disease uh, compared to those with um, functional disease. And so I do think we're talking about different patient populations, and you are going to need that long-term follow-up in order to see the outcomes in a more degenerative pop-
1: population.
6: I don't know what if you have any comments about that.
3: I think those are great points. Thank you.
1: Yeah, Becky, I'm curious. I mean, you, you brought up this interesting concept that I think that many of us see in the OR, but we, we haven't necessarily described very well. You know, we, We've learned that for MR, there's, there's different varieties of functional MR, you know, being ventricular versus atrial. And I think that's also very true on on the right side as well with TR. And I think all of us see patients with AFib for a long time and their tricuspid valve is dilated. They may have some degree of TR or a lot or none. And those seem to be very different valve morphologies and tissue quality than those that are tethered from RV dysfunction. So I think we need to get smarter about that. And, And I would say that, you know, in the to be in this trial we didn't necessarily discern that to that that degree jim and gaurav there was a question from the audience so what was the incidence of
5: worsening mr in the group with worsening tr um you know tr could be a product of mitral valve disease so how many of them had worsening mr
3: <clears throat> you know it's it can i take that one gaurav, gaurav yeah, go for your author on this paper so i don't want to <laughs> um, he uh the the um at, at two years, uh, 10% of patients had moderate or severe MR. Um, and we have not done the analyses yet to see if there was a correlation with uh, with recurrent MR and recurrent TR. So uh, stay tuned for, for that uh, analysis. It's a good question. Yeah. So. And, I,
1: I, and uh, you know, I do want to state like someone like this honestly could have been in the trial, even as you presented, Lior, because the patient- does have degenerative MR, it, it, it's likely not necessarily a repairable valve or be a heroic repair that you might've undertaken and knowing you that's probably the case, but, you know, or you would have tried, but, but a patient like this could have actually qualified for this trial and very likely would have gotten replacement. And that's why may, there might be some, some skewing of the results. It's not, the trial didn't say that has to be a repairable degenerative valve. They just have to have a degenerative mitral valve as their etiology. So we'll have to delve into that more. Another question that looks like it came up and, and there's a lot of questions, Jim, you and I talked about that, you know, all the audience is very interested in the technique of tricuspid repair. Was it done with a beating heart, uh, off pump, I mean, a uh, pump assist or a cl- heart clamped. Yeah, and, you know, does middle invasive versus sternotomy, all those, all those factors, uh, how do they play a role? Uh, some of those patients may even had a pacemaker, right? Uh, already so how does how does all that play a role in in the outcomes that we see? and clearly we haven't done those analyses yet but it'd be really important i don't know if you've made, i'm curious what this what the surgeons here do with their in a concomitant case like this do you do it jim or yoshi do you do your tricuspid valve with a beating, beating heart or not or typically what does it depend yeah. typically yeah. beating heart um,
2: usually beating yeah, yeah. It depends, though. I mean, you know, if it's if it's along with another long set of case, you know, operative things to do, then I'll usually do a beating heart. But if I think there's going to be something more complicated with the tricuspid, where I'm looking to do any leaflet repair or something different, then I'll, probably, I'll wait and not do a beating heart.
3: Yeah. Jim, what do you think? I, I do an arrested heart. Um, I think it's easier for the residents to do it when there's not uh, uh, quite so much uh, blood in the field. <laughs>
5: I mean, do you think yeah. there's a difference in the um, the pacemaker rate with that? I mean, you know, one of the benefits of beating heart is that you can actually see the rhythm.
3: Um, yeah, I totally
5: agree. Yeah.
3: yeah, yeah. I th- That's one of the things we're going to look at. And and we certainly know that some of the sites did do beating heart and some did because you could look at the cross clamp and the, the bypass times and see a discrepancy. Yeah. So um, th- that's a great question. And, and maybe we'll find uh, in going back over the op notes and doing that analysis that, Beating heart is the way to go. How often do you all put a suture in and see the see, see the conduction stop and then take it out? Does that happen often?
5: It can happen mm-hmm.
1: not often, but I've done it. <laughs> I've taken no, it out. I'd say <laughs> can
5: take
3: it out.
1: <laughs> what can happen is you might not see it right away, but as you tie it down, sometimes you right. see yeah. some, some changes. But I've also had patients where I've done a beating heart. Rhythm's fine, and then two days later they've heart block yeah, yeah. So right. what do you think
2: about pacers in, in that patient population and now you're putting do you leadless pacers like what is what is your approach for folks who need a pacemaker two days post-op
0: i mean
1: like well, that's that's a load of question because is anybody willing to put a pacemaker that early and <laughs> you know but, but, but assuming they need a pacemaker out a week or something what do you guys think what kind of leads are you putting a standard lead, you're putting a lead under echo guidance, a lead list, corny sinus lead. And then we can ask Becky what their experience is from the transcatheter side.
6: Well, I'm actually just wondering what what happened in the trial. Did they do, uh, I'm assuming they did RV. Yeah. RV. Yeah, no, yeah. we'll,
3: yeah. we'll get back to you on, on that.
1: It, it was really up to the site's discretion. So. Because yeah. then the
6: question becomes that, you know, a 14% pacemaker rate and a 14% progression rate are they related um, because, you know, we know that um, at least in our experience clinically that it takes somewhere between, you know, it takes a little while for you to develop tricuspid regurgage, but it really all depends on, you know, because of the fibrosis aspect, but it all really depends on, on where the lead is sitting and it could cause uh, regurgitation within two years. Typically we've seen it at about five years.
3: We didn't or see severe any,
6: TR at five. Years. Yeah,
3: the, the the progression didn't happen in the in the uh, in the tricuspid annuloplasty patients. It happened in the non non annuloplasty patients, um, and it's interesting. We know from the literature that these people who have a, a pacemaker put in something like thirty to forty percent of them six months later don't are not pacer dependent anymore. Yeah.
0: yeah, yeah, that's true. So, I, know,
4: I know in our transcatheter world we try not to cross the tricuspid valve the lead after we've just put a valve in or something.
1: You spent a lot of time fixing it and making it look pretty. So so most of the questions now in the chat relate to what do we do now? So Jim, Yoshi, Leora, what are you going to do now today with with this hot data that just came out, both with somebody who has moderate TR, no, no uh, pre-op pacing issues. And let's say they're low risk, at least on paper, they don't have, uh, you know, a secondary heart block or a YQRS uh, or, or any type of physicular block, let's say moderate TR and versus uh, just a dilated annulus. How are you guys all, how's this changing your practice or affect your practice? Jim, you want to start?
3: I want to be careful not to get out in front of my skis and, and really just, uh, you know, go with the data that we've presented. <laughs> so I think that the data are informative, my takeaway is that it as, as we wrote in the paper that it calls into question the reliance on on tricuspid annular dilation as a indicator for doing something to the tricuspid valve. And I couldn't agree more with what Becky said that the tricuspid is such a complex three-dimensional structure. and the notion, you know the Dreyfus notion of relying on on the the diameter probably, doesn't cut it, and it's certainly while we weren't, we really weren't powered to do the sub analyses that we did. You can't help but looking at the less than moderate group and seeing virtually no progression in the untreated group, and say, hmm, that's probably not necessary to do that prophylactically. My approach has always been to be aggressive if there's moderate TR, and and for the audience, you know the. You always look at TR over time, and the decision should be made before the operating room uh, how much TR there is in a non-anesthetized state. And, uh, you know, I have always treated uh, the, the moderate TR because if these patients come back with severe TR, that's a real management problem, and you don't want to reoperate on them, things like that. So it hasn't really changed my practice a lot, uh, but um, it certainly is is informative, and we still have more to learn with those additional analysis we talked about.
1: Yoshi, do you feel different in any way?
5: You know, I have treated a lot of annular dilatation with a ring, even if it was mild to moderate, but um, I think I'm gonna stop doing that based on this data. Um, the moderate, I think it, you know, one of the parts that did bother me was that even in the repair group, the, uh, the quality of life didn't really improve based on the scores. Um, not just the mortality, but the KCCQ, I think, were similar. I mean, when
1: you compare to tricuspid repair group versus, the, I mean, uh, the everybody's, everybody's claw of life improved in the entire trial. It, it, it did. improved a lot. But I think that was from mitral,
5: right? Yeah. And it didn't it improve from the tricuspid, which was a little surprising. But at the same time, you know, a lot of the patients that we do mitral valve repairs do live longer than two years. So I think there is a benefit to repairing the moderate TR. So I will continue to repair that moderate once
1: moving forward. Leora, how
2: about you? Yeah, I agree. I think it's interesting, and, and I do think that we have to follow this group out maybe a little bit longer. You know, my my primary role is in the functional group, so, you know, LVADs and, and heart failure, and so they also have a lot of TR, but maybe for different reasons, and I'm always impressed with how, um, you know, when you correct their left-sided dysfunction with an LVAD or for, for instance, and their their TR does uh, improve or stay stable in, in the majority of patients, um, but there is a subset in whom it doesn't. And in those, it's actually really interesting to watch what happens to their right-sided function. So this this trial is obviously very different and I do think needs to be followed out maybe a little bit longer um, for a variety of reasons. you know, I, I'm hesitant, as you know, to sort of overdo things um, as a as just a baseline, <laughs> and um, and I worry about a 14% pacemaker rate. I don't think that we're doing anybody any favors if we have a pacemaker rate that's that high, particularly if we're going to end up putting a lead across a valve in a very healthy population that's going to live a long time. And so, um, you know, I would have to look pretty closely at that. I think moderate, and if you can prove maybe one other uh, thing that's going on, you know, either liver dysfunction or, or some pulmonary pressure, something else, some other indicator, then I do think that it's uh, warranted in the moderate population. Uh, but in the absence of that, I think I'd be hard-pressed. So, so
1: even in that. a moderate, you wouldn't necessarily, unless there are other factors. Interesting. I, I, would,
2: I would look for other factors. Yeah.
1: Well, this, is, this will be interesting, Jim, to see how not just the sub-analyses, but the longer-term data play out.
5: Absolutely. It's going to be super important.
1: Leroy, do you want to tell us what
5: you did with that patient?
2: Yeah. So, I mean, if this is my partner's case, and, and full disclosure, and so Um, What they did, and I don't know, maybe I'll share my screen just for another uh, two slides or one slide here uh, just to show you uh, the end results, if that's going through. So essentially, uh, the mitral valve was able to be uh, repaired. It had torn off of the annulus um, in the area of uh, A1, and so that was repaired back to the annulus, and then uh, obviously the clips were removed, and uh, the... Uh, P2 was resected and then a ring placed. Um, and this is sort of the final result on the, uh, the mitral side there. And then uh, in this case, the tricuspid was ringed as well um, uh, with also a nice result. And then they ended up closing the ASD. So uh, both sides uh, were repaired.
1: Right, did you say that the, the valve was torn off the annulus?
2: Yeah, one of the leaflets. So I think that what the acute presentation was was probably one of the clips. You know, the the leaflet had actually torn. Um,
1: yeah. Sort of at the. It didn't tear. Ta- okay, didn't necessarily rip off the the valve from the annulus, but the, the where the leaflet was attached, the valve tore there.
2: Yeah. Well, no, actually, at the annular level, like there was some disruption there that needed to be repaired.
1: Huh. Yeah. It's a pretty a uh, violent clip somebody put on. <laughs> All right. Yeah, have you seen that before, yeah. Molly? Becky, have you seen that before?
6: Well, yeah. we had one that we actually tore the leaflet off, and there's no question that the leaflet tore. It's just bad, you know, bad tissue. I think. Oh uh, yeah, I, I've seen that before. Yeah.
1: yeah functional ones more rather than i haven't seen it rip off the annuals
6: functional
2: functional yeah
1: yeah functional good point yeah and
6: the only other question is you know what what devices they put in because we know that as you start to get toward the commissures you probably should stay away from uh, the long clips so like the XTWs. um because they're gonna they just don't have the same force at the tip uh and they can just kind of tear everything so uh you know just curious as to the technique that was used yeah absolutely
2: i don't have those
6: details
5: all right maybe for the sake of time we should move towards the transcatheter side gore don't think yeah go for it Uh, okay molly do you want to present what's really hot in transcatheter tricuspid world
4: yeah all right let me share so is interesting is because i was told i had seven minutes to to talk about transcatheter repair and replacement and at tct i had seven minutes to just do replacement so this i one- heard that <laughs> talk and i knew do it, so. <laughs>
0: all
4: right so this will be interesting to try to get that through so i'll kind of fly through Um, Take a little
1: time. It's okay, (laughs) Molly.
4: All right. And I will have to say that I stuck to uh, tear and replacement. So I really do not have much on annuloplasty. But um, so for tear, this is um, what is been going on on the tricuspid percutaneous side. That is a little bit, um, we have a little bit more data than... um, than replacement and we have more data with the with with the mitral clip this was all born out of uh doing uh, drive-by tricuspid work um when you're doing the uh the mitral clip for the mitral side so it led to the Triluminate study which is a dedicated uh triclip for the tricuspid side or i should say it's the same uh, mitral clip, but the delivery system is dedicated for the tricuspid. And the objective of this was to evaluate the safety and performance of the triclip in patients with symptomatic uh, moderate or greater tricuspid regurgitation. This was a prospective single-arm multicenter trial in 21 sites in the U.S. and Europe. The primary endpoints for this were effectiveness, um, the TR reduction of at least one grade at 30 days post-procedure, and then a safety endpoint, uh, which was a composite of uh, major adverse events at six months. And then you can see the eligibility. And so severe hypertension or severe pulmonary hypertension is excluded in almost every study. And then the inclusion was moderate or greater TR, so not just severe TR. And so this is the mitral clip in the tricuspid position. That was before. This is after the mitral clip was placed and this one actually had two. And let's see if this thing will play. And so had pretty good reduction of TR. I'm not sure that anybody has complete reduction of TR, but at least it gets down to, uh, you, you can get it down to hopefully mild. So the Triluminate study at 30 days in one year showed a sustained reduction in TR greater to equal to one grade in 87% of the patients, and the initial reduction of uh, TR was sustained in 79% of patients. Functional class had also improved. It increased to one and two from um, only 31% to 83% of the patients at one year, so a pretty good increase or decrease in functional class increase in functional class. Um, So there was also early signs of positive remodeling in the right atrium and right ventricle. So it had benefit to the actual uh, integrity of the right ventricle. So the next uh, leaflet um, or tier uh, uh, device is the Pascal, which is a central spacer that actually bridges the coaptation gap. It elongates, so it's a little bit easier, I think, to navigate in the dense cordae that we uh, know the tricuspid um, has. It has a night and all design. It was the first device that has independent clasps. So you can really optimize leaflet placement, though now the clip also has independent uh, grasping. And it has this Pascal ACE, which I think we have begun to use uh, only the Pascal ACE in tricuspid because it has a narrow profile and can get around to all those cords. All right, so this is what the clasp looks like. Um, This was pre, this was in in the EFS. And this is post with one clip and got a pretty good reduction. So the EFS trial enrolled 63 patients, predominantly female, and it had very good success rates. The implant rate was 100% successful. And at 30 days in six months, mortality was um, pretty much the same, 3.2% at six months and uh, bleeding was six and then 8%. There were significant improvements. Uh, 89% achieved a greater than, a greater or equal to one grade reduction. 70% achieved a greater than equal to two grade reductions at six months. And then there was also an improvement in functional class. 84% improved to one or two. Uh, NYHA six minute walk improved in the KCCQ scores improved as well. So this was a favorable six month results with high implant procedural and success rates. There were low complication rates with significant TR reduction and more importantly, an improvement in in symptoms and quality of life. So this has led to the class two TR trial, which is ongoing now. This is a prospective multi-center randomized control pivotal trial. It's the Pascal system plus uh, optimal medical therapy to optimal medical therapy alone. Optimal medical therapy is really just um, progressive diuretics. The primary endpoint is at 24 months. It's a hierarchical component composite endpoint of all-cause mortality, heart failure hospitalizations and need for surgery on the tricuspid valve, as well as improvement of quality of life. And like I said, this is ongoing now. It's for patients with symptomatic severe TR, so not moderate, but just symptomatic severe TR moving on to transcatheter tricuspid valve replacement so there's really two types though we do the orthotopic more than the heterotopic the orthotopic means the valve is deployed at the tricuspid annulus heterotopic means that the valve is deployed in one or both of the cavas so we'll talk about orthotopic first the the one that's farthest along is the evoked tricuspid valve this was also taken from the mitral side though so now the mitral side has a uh, the next generation valve, which is the EOS. Um, this is still the, uh, the I guess, second, third generation evoke. I think EOS is now fourth generation. Um, it's a unique valve design in that um, it engaged the leaflets, um, the cords, in the annulus. It has these atraumatic anchors. It has a conforming frame. It has multiple sizes, 44, 48, and 52, which is great because the tricuspid annulus can be very big. Um, And it's only a 28 French um, delivery system, which is compatible with all the different sizes, which is pretty nice. The the, the EFS trial was the TRISEND study. This was with symptomatic greater than equal moderate uh, um, tricuspid regurgitation, so moderate and severe. And the endpoints were device and procedural success, TR reduction, and a composite of major adverse events at 30 days. Follow-up was 36 months, 30 days, six months, one year, and annually through five years. 56 patients, also predominantly female, which I do want to talk about after that, that all these patients seem to be female. Um, Significant reduction in TRs um, was achieved. There was 98% reduction in TR severity to non or trace at 30 days, 100% achieved greater than one uh greater than equal to one grade reduction and 95 percent achieved greater than equal to two grade reduction at 30 days which is pretty good the complication rate was low though there was severe bleeding that happened in 22 percent but none of the uh severe bleeding were life-threatening nor were they um, were fatal there is an improvement in quality of life as you might expect Uh, um there's 77 percent had one uh, new york heart association one or two there was an increase in six minor walk and an increase in K- kccq so um, across these nine t- sites there was a huge severe ntr reduction um, with a, a pretty low complication rate so this has led to the pivotal trial which is um, patients with severe tr or greater and it's also randomized to optimal medical therapy or optimal medical therapy plus the evoke device, the same follow up 30 days, three months, six months, one year and annually through five years. And then your primary endpoints are what you would imagine TR grade reduction and then a composite of KCCQ, New York Heart Association six um, and six meter walk. Uh, there was also a primary endpoint of major adverse events at 30 days and then a composite endpoint of all those things that are listed there. The next uh, tricuspid valve replacement is the cardio valve, also which came from the mitral side, also transfemoral and transeptal. Um, I don't care what Paul Siraja says. I would much rather have a transseptal device than a transapical <laughs> device um, any day um, this that means is, you don't
1: like Rob Smith's suturing skills, come
4: on. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, this is a robust frame. It also has uh, a small, medium, large, and extra large. So it goes up to 55 millimeters. Um, there's proprietary anchoring with without any radial forces, and it has a PVL uh, ceiling cuff. And they have just recently started their tricuspid um, EFS trial. So this is TR pre and post on one of their patients with pretty good outcomes of um, reduction in TR. That was acutely, this is 30 days. It's sustained its TR reduction with no paravalvular leak. And then you see the three month uh, follow-up with reduced uh, uh, TR as well. The next one is the Intrepid valve. This um, was also designed for mitral as you can tell, most of these things came from the mitral side. It is a, uh, outer stent with an inner stent. Um, so you don't really have to worry about uh, rotational alignment. It only goes to 42 and 48, and it's both transapical and transfemoral mainly because of the mitral side. Um, this is the delivery system. They all actually, all the delivery systems kind of look like each other. They're very big and bulky. This is the deployment of Intrepid. Again, this is early, early in first-in-man um, and EFS trials, and it just sort of uh, releases, expands, and releases. So it's it's not a difficult deployment. Um, it's multi-directional, as most of these devices have to be multi directional steering so you can get it in but it is 35 french which is even though it's venous it is still pretty large Um, and so they have a 30 patient efs study that is ongoing now heterotopic i don't think is going to gain much ground but i may be wrong the idea behind it is that it reduces venous regurgitation and improves hemodynamics that way but it ventricularizes the right atrium so this ends up being more palliative because the RA just can't handle that. Um, The risks are thrombosis, embolization, and covering the hepatic veins. The Sapien XT was the first to be used. It was deployed in a cover stent in the IVC. Um, Otherwise, it wouldn't stay in place, Um, as well as the IVC is pretty um, big, and so we needed a stent to be able to put a 29 Sapien into it. Uh, the tri trial which was looking into this was ended early due to dislodgement but they have a hover trial that is ongoing. And then this was kind of interesting. This is the trick valve, which is also an EFS right now and ongoing. It's mounten, mounted on nitinol stents. And so they have an SVC valve that's kind of a longer skirt that's implanted in the SVC to reduce paravalvular leak. And then a shorter skirt in the IVC valve to reduce paravalvular leak as well, but also reduces the chance of covering the hepatic veins, which is a, a, a big thing that they worry about. The primary endpoints are adverse events. Um, at 30 days in New York Heart Association. So that's all I've got for repair and replacement.
5: That, that was a lot and super exciting. <laughs> There's a lot that's going on in this field, but I think one case is worth a thousand words. Becky, do you wanna show your case?
6: Yeah. Yeah, sure, I'll, um, <clears throat> let me know if you can see the slides. All right, we're going to hope for the best here. It's a really big file, but um, can you see them? Yes. Okay, great. So this is our patient, 84-year-old, um, very slight uh, female. She's in uh, New York Heart Association class four, um, uh, relatively low blood pressures. You see her SJS score, but her frailty score was six. So um, uh, you know she was frail, although she could walk uh, 348 meters in uh, six minutes. She had a number of different comorbidities, including atrial fibrillation. Most of A lot of of the patients obviously in all the trials uh, have atrial fibrillation, also uh, heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. Um, She also already had a pacemaker Put in her uh, right heart cath showed uh, pulmonary pressures of only uh, 50, uh, so elevated, but not uh, uh, wouldn't exclude her from any from any device. Uh, she's on uh, the usual medications, including um, uh, two types of diuretic, and then also on an anticoagulant, so a pixaban. Um, she has pretty good renal function, and then you see that her uh, BMP is indeed elevated. These were initial uh, images, um, uh, just transthoracic. You could see the pacemaker in there. She's got tethering, massive dilatation um, of the right atrium in the setting of atrial fibrillation, um, and the initial transesophageal you can see here also. But I'm going to show you the base, uh, another baseline. Hopefully, it'll show up. Um, imaging here. Um, Yeah, uh, just to show that uh, indeed, uh, despite being in chronic atrial fibrillation, there's really no significant mitral disease, and it's all um, dilatation of the right atrium. Uh, Some older studies suggest that that's actually a not uncommon pattern. Uh, Her RV function was indeed uh, somewhat reduced. We have an RV strain here of minus 15, uh, not infrequently um, in the setting of tricuspid regurg. We might expect that to be hyperdynamic, um, but it's not. Uh, so now um, uh, just our standard views to get a good uh, assessment of the, of the extent of the regurgitation. This is a sweep across the inflow-outflow view from the anterior to uh, the posterior um, uh, tricuspid annulus. And as you sweep across, uh, we're basically imaging the entire coaptation zone with the septal leaflet. Uh, again, most of the dilatation occurring either out the anterior uh, lateral or the posterior lateral annulus and therefore pulling away from the septal. These are the gastric views which we like to use and you can see now um, uh, that there's extensive cordy um, across uh, the entire coaptation zone, um, just everywhere you look. Uh, and that regurgitation again has a long anterior posterior length and a shorter um, uh, septal uh, three-dimensional imaging shows the same thing, it doesn't look as though we have any uh, impingement by the pacer, so a lot of the uh, pacers are incidental, um, and uh, this is all still uh, what we think is kind of end-stage atrial functional, uh, which then show, uh, becomes tethered. Uh, the 3D vena contract area was torrential, so this is a 1.6 centimeter squared by just planimetry of the color Doppler jet. and um, uh, then the the question to the panel is uh, what are the treatment options. So I don't know if anyone is going to opt for isolated uh, tricuspid valve surgery versus transcatheter. We've already hopefully optimized medical therapy, but the patient maybe remains a exact. fair
1: question, Becky, is you know prior to the advent of these transcatheter devices from the surgical group, how many would would offer her an operation, and what would you do? You know, would you try to repair it? Would you replace it? I don't know. Leora,
2: Jim, or Yoshi? No, I think it's us. interesting, you know, it, with the advent of these trials, I feel like, at least for me on the surgical side, I see way more of these patients just in general. Um, and, uh, you know, I think initially, you know, if you saw an isolated tricuspid patient, they would already be in, in very advanced uh, RV failure. But now I'm seeing them sooner where their, their ventricular function is still intact. And so, um, you know, we have a number of these trials ongoing, obviously here at UVA. And, and so most people get shunted in that direction, um, uh, right now, but there are people who don't qualify. And so we have taken a number of them to the OR and, and actually they do, um, actually pretty well so uh and then to to your question uh, i usually replace them when they're this advanced what you're just describing here
0: Yeah.
4: yeah i wanted to add with because i think of the transcatheter work on the tricuspid valve it has made surgery much um i mean maybe safer and better in the fact that we know that you have to optimize these patients before you do anything we know how to pick these patients because when we look at our isolated tricuspid valve surgery data, um, the paper that we wrote like in 2019 was we had dropped our mortality down to 3.9%, which was way lower than the national average, where the the next lowest was, was um, 8%. And then after that was 11 and 15%. And now when we look at our last three-year data, the mortality, I mean, was close to zero. So I think that the surgeons have learned a lot from patient selection, or at least we've gotten the, a lot of the, uh, education out there for pay, for people to send their patients, or I mean, at least look at it first and, and recognize that there's tricuspid regurgitation and then send the patients earlier. So it will be interesting to, to know, you know, surgery versus transcatheter and who to, who to do and who not to do.
3: I think, um, Those are great points. This patient, uh, the RV function looked pretty bad to me. And I think you live or die by what the RV function is and your patient does too. Um, So this is not someone that I would uh, offer surgery to. I think if the RV function was a little better, your question around repair or replacement, I find this a difficult uh, topic. I think for your average patients that's having a mitral operation with moderate TR, easy. You ring and you're successful for me, if you've got visible malcoaptation, I would absolutely uh, move in the direction of, of a replacement. I'm curious, uh, Yoshi or Gorav or, or Becky, do, do you have a different algorithm for when you replace and when you repair uh, a tricuspid valve?
1: Oh, awesome. I've certainly shifted to uh, being more aggressive about replacement, especially in, in these patients, you kind of get one shot. And if we look at functional MR data and ringing, you know, for severe MR, we know even from the CTSN trial, the outcomes are not great in terms of recurrence. I think that's matched particularly with ventricular tricuspid regurgitation and a lot of ventricular dysfunction and tethering. I think ultimately, I'm guessing we're going to get smarter about looking at the amount of leaflet relative to the the orifice area, you know, because the atrial atrial TR patients, they tend to have actually a decent amount of tricuspid valve leaflet, but the tethered uh, functional TR from ventricular disease, they tend to be much like on the mitral side. They don't have a lot of valve valve uh, orifice if you, or uh, leaflet orifice area, I guess.
5: Jim, for the sake of time, I'll make it really quick, but my threshold for replacing the valve if it's isolated has gone really low because of the transcatheter tricuspid valve and valve. The tricuspid valve and ring does not produce good outcomes. So if it fails, valve and valve serves much, much better. So if there is a valve that looks like the repair is gonna be, mm, I would have very low threshold for replacing those.
3: Understanding that you have a pretty high pacemaker rate with replacement. That is true.
1: There, there is a question in the chat about matrix tricuspid valve replacement. I'm assuming that the question is related to core matrix maybe?
6: Core matrix, i Like sure.
1: a neo valve? Yeah, Is that yeah. something that you guys have have done, in, in, in like even in a non-endocarditis or endocarditis population? No, I certainly haven't. Just because some of the data I've seen doesn't suggest it has great longevity, but it sounds right. like that's not maybe a little little too early uh, yeah. for for uh, for prime time. All right, Becky, you want to yeah. tell us how it went?
6: Yeah, sure. Um, I did want to make a comment about um, the lower uh, mortality rates that are being reported um, by single site studies. Um, in general, those patients are a lot younger. Um, uh, there was one study that the average age was 56. So that's not the patient population that we end up treating. And it's just as Molly um, suggested, is that uh, those patients are coming uh, much earlier and therefore have fewer comorbidities. And I think the ones that that we end up getting are ones like this, which are which are pretty sick. I wanted to point out that there's a new um, uh, surgical risk score for tricuspid valve. I don't know if anyone's tried it, but this is from the Dreyfus, uh, Julian Dreyfus study uh, coming out of France that showed the same mortality rate as the U.S. studies uh, by Zach and al um, uh, which uh, had a 10% mortality rate. They then took that population and generated a risk score, surgical risk score, and it's up online. And so we did that for our patient and uh, our patient's risk score was super high at um, uh, 14%. So she had already had the RV dysfunction, as Jim had mentioned. And so um, this was not not going to go well. And so um, we opted for transcatheter tricuspid valve replacement over a tier device uh, given the challenges of the uh, cordal um, uh, apparatus, so you saw those dense cordy, um, uh, and w- we we thought this was better. So I don't know if you can hear this ad- or not. Can you guys hear me talking on the?
0: No. It's
1: not no? very well. Now no, we're okay with live Becky talking too. Yeah. <laughs> okay. It might be better. <laughs> you want to just describe it? You know, I bet a lot of the audience have not been um, a, a uh, evoke or any yeah, trans-
6: um so um hold on one second yeah so you know we're we're right now i'm not going to go through the whole case obviously um uh that would that would take us a long long time um i might i might uh, just come out of uh, powerpoint for a second um but we can i was hoping we could skip to a bunch of the endpoints um to show you how we're doing this but um, this was the live case at TCT, and so uh, within 50 minutes, we were able to put in a valve. Um, and we started, obviously, with just doing routine imaging, and um, uh, hold on, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see if I can. I don't think I can. Oh, yeah, here. So then uh, this is just, uh, again, showing the device. We heavily use um, multiplanar reconstruction um in order to um really you know speak to each other in the same language and we we align all of these uh planes in exactly the same way so that every time i talk to Sushil, it's it's the home view is this view which is going to be posterior anterior septal lateral um but when we're looking at the device and the anchors we're going to just use uh this uh, real-time multi reconstruction uh, to basically um, flip around and be able to to go in a circle, see all nine anchors, um, and so by being able to see all nine anchors at all times, uh, which you can you can see on the three D also, um, we can be sure that we're underneath the leaflets and um, uh, the leaflets are coming over the top, and that the uh, anchors themselves are within the within the annulus because it it uses multiple mechanisms to anchor. This is not uh, something that has times or anything like that. It actually has uh, these hooks, as you can see, and they've come out now um, and are gonna be um, gradually expanded. So the device is just gradually expanded as we're continuing to watch. Again, uh, uh, making that constant uh, look at the, uh, using echo to, um, uh, to redirect the, the device and make sure that we're centered in the orifice um, and then uh, continue to expand. And, and everyone in the room has to feel comfortable. We're again using a uh, live 3D to uh, rotate around. Um, and then we just continue to, to expand um, and they've just deployed the valve here. So this is us uh, de- having deployed the valve and we're just gonna help the interventionalists come out of the, uh, safely come out of the valve so that they, they don't dislodge it. You can see that the pacemaker is now exteriorized um, uh, out the posterolateral side. Um, and we've not had any cases um, that have had um, any change at all in uh, in their um, uh, in their pacemakers. Um, we have had a pacemaker rate that uh, Sushil presented in the six month uh study of about ten percent, so a little bit better than surgery, maybe. Although it's it's roughly comparable to to many of the other surgical trials uh, with tricuspid valve uh, surgery. Um, and in this particular case, we see that there's just a really uh, small amount of leak um, around the pacing wire and maybe just a little bit of anchors. Uh, but otherwise, a uh, plenometer valve area of 2.5 centimeters squared, really trivial, uh, everything else. And then uh, obviously, we look at RV function, we worried about RV function. This patient did extraordinary. I mean, you can really see this RV function, which we we're really concerned about uh, being minus 15. Normally, a tricuspid's going to be well over 20 uh, for strain, and uh, did not turn a hair. I mean, normally they come way down, and because there's intrinsic mechanical dysfunction, this patient stayed right at 15. Has done extraordinarily well. You can see that the reversal in the hepatic vein is basically gone. This is all just a compliance issues, uh, as far as uh, a little bit of reversal but there really is a tremendous forward flow, as you can see in the hepatic. And we also showed uh, that there was increased forward flow uh, out the LV alpha tract. So everything that we had hoped for in a a transcatheter tricuspid valve uh, replacement.
1: It's a great uh, study and great result, um, Becky. So I I just want to follow up question, you know, there's this concept or, or concern that that both cardiologists and surgeons have had both on the mitral and especially on the, on the tricuspid side, is it better to leave a little bit of TR or in some of these really, can you hear me? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, good. Yeah. Uh, in, in these really advanced poor right ventricles, is it better to leave some TR or, or complete elimination is, is okay. And the RV can handle it. I'm curious based on what you've seen. Well, you just, I mean, you past-
6: just saw a result that, that right. is, was relatively surprising, but I mean, uh, that RV tolerated it um, pretty darn well. Um, and so uh, I, I don't know, there, there are valves that are being designed now to have pop-off um, e- either uh, actual defects that, that can be opened to allow some um, pop-off with uh, tricuspid regerge, or, uh, the tricuspid regurg, or there's another valve that has this very, very big closing uh, volume of maybe five, even 10 cc's. Uh, that's, uh, felt to be able to, uh, afterload reduce, uh, those patients. And I, I just don't, we, nobody knows. I mean, I, I mean, Jim, I mean, I, you guys, I mean, what do you, th- I mean, you guys take away TR all the time.
1: Yeah.
6: Um, you know, I would think that less TR is better.
3: Yeah. What do you think, Jim? Yeah, I think it's the same as in the mitral, you know, 30 years ago, uh, people were saying, oh, don't take away the pop-off valve. We know that's not really true. And I think that probably holds true for the tricuspid. Although, if you have a profoundly depressed RV function, I yeah. I don't think you want to be doing anything to, yeah. to that. I no. agree
4: with that. I think that's yeah. the key that's is it. patient yeah. selection. Yeah.
5: If you have a severe RV dysfunction, I think pop off does help. So maybe those are the ones that you should be putting the clips on. You know, rather or than nothing or
0: nothing, nothing, Nishi, <laughs> nothing.
5: Yeah, say so, so you may not. There might not be much benefit at all. <laughs> All right, I think we can go on for another hour talking about this, but I think we're about time. Um, I think all the panelists probably agree that the next five years, we'll be talking a lot about tricuspid. I think yeah. it's, the, it's the era of tricuspid, and I think it's a really, really hot topic. Um, thank you for everybody for, uh, for the participation, to all the panelists, to the STS, and all the participants. Um, and we look forward to seeing you again. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you. Thank
3: you, Yoshi.
1: Have a great night. Thank you, Have a good night. Thanks, everybody.
0: Good night. Thank you very much for staying a little bit over time, and thank you to our moderators and panelists for your participation and insight. We invite you to become a member of STS if you're not one already. You'll enjoy a variety of discounts, benefits, and opportunities to help you grow professionally. Learn more at sts.org slash membership. Register now to attend the STS annual meeting in January and be together again with the cardiothoracic surgery community. Early bird discounts are available until December 2nd. Go to sts.org slash annual meeting to view the program and register. The STS Cardiothoracic Surgery eBook is now available for purchase online or mobile. It's the most complete and authoritative resource for CT surgical information in the world. The latest update of the eBook includes 36 new chapters in the adult and pediatric cardiac surgery volume. Learn more and subscribe at sts.org eBook. Lastly, Save the date for the next event in the STS webinar series. The program will address the new framework for quality improvement patient safety. Join us on Thursday, December 16th at 7 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much and have a great night.